Amen. Thank you, Ruth. Well, this morning we are halfway through our Villains of the Bible series. We've been looking at some of the enemies of God that we see in Scripture and to see how God not only works in spite of those enemies that stand against him, but sometimes even works through those enemies to accomplish his purposes. So we started two weeks ago with the enemy that was Herod, right? Right after Christmas, and we looked at how Herod tried to put an end to, to the Jesus salvation plan that God had right at the very beginning. And we saw the heartbreak of the city in the vicinity of Bethlehem as he put to death all the boys two years and younger. But he could not stop God's plan. Right? Last week, Brent was here, and, and Brent shared with us the story of Samson from the Old Testament. Samson, who, who had this strange mixture of both villain and hero, kind of like us, the, the mixture of good and bad within both of us. And God used Samson in a, in a powerful way. Well, this morning, we're going to stick back in the Old Testament. In fact, we're going to stay back in the, in the book of Judges. We're going to look at Judges chapter 4. You'll want to have your Bibles open to that throughout the message this morning. Judges chapter 4, page 235 in the Bibles you have in front of you. When I was thinking about who, who this villain should be, I wanted to find a villain in this series for this Sunday who stood blatantly out against the will of God. I wanted, I wanted us to talk about what do we do when what does God do when there's someone blatantly standing against God's plans and God's purposes? And there were a whole bunch of, of well-known villains that we could have chosen. Right? I could have chosen Pharaoh back in Egypt who stands against God's people. I could have chosen Goliath, the giant standing there, and David right, who takes him on. I could have chosen the worst king and queen combination ever in the history of Israel, Ahab and Jezebel, they stood completely against God. Could have chosen King Nebuchadnezzar, right? The king of Babylon who, who tells people to worship him instead of worshiping God. I, instead, I chose a much lesser known villain. In fact, let me ask you, let me take a quick survey. When you see the name Sisera up there on the screen, how many of you know, yeah, I know the story of Sisera. I know who he is. A show of hands. Good, I got a few. I got a few who know Sisera. That means you probably don't know who the hero was who stood against Sisera either. Well, you're going to find out a fascinating story this morning. My guess is once we read it, you're going to be, you're going to remember and say, oh yeah, I remember that villain, Right? This, this story of Sisera and the heroes who stand against him shows us how God still uses each of us, can use each of us today, to stand against the enemies that are still real, to stand against those blatant powers of evil in our lives as well. There, there's four main characters in this story. We're going to look at all four of them because each of them gives us a little bit of the picture of how God works. Okay, and the first person we're introduced to here in Judges chapter 4 is the villain, Sisera. Right? Look at the first three verses of Judges 4 with me. It says, after Ehud died, Ehud was the, the, um, the judge before. After Ehud died, the Israelites once again did evil in the eyes of the Lord. So the Lord sold them into the hands of Jabin, the king of Canaan, who reigned in Hazor. The commander of his army was Sisera who lived in Harashoth 
Higimah. Because he had 900 iron chariots and had cruelly opposed the Israelites for 20 years, they cried out to the Lord for help. Okay, so we're introduced here to Sisera, the latest bad guy in this repeated Judges cycle, right? If you ever read the book of Judges, the history of the nation of Israel, you know how the cycle goes, okay? The people of Israel, this nation, is faithful to God, and they love God, and he blesses them in their land. And over time, they begin to forget about God, right? They start off by saying, after Ehud died. So they have a spiritual leader. When their spiritual leader dies, they begin to forget about God and who he is. They live on their own, apart from God, and they become more and more evil until God finally brings his discipline to them to try and pull them back. And usually that comes in the form of a foreign oppressor who comes and takes over their land. And they suffer under this foreign oppressor until they finally realize that they miss God. And they need God and they cry out to him for help and God raises up a judge, a leader of the people to bring them back to God and sets them free again and the cycle begins again. Well, here is Sisera. He's the latest villain in this cycle. He's an especially bad one. Okay, he's a picture of true earthly power lived out in this world. Give you a little history lesson here. For those of you who, who might choose to dig into the history of that lies behind this story, you'll, you'll read, you probably notice that we're introduced to Jabin, a king of Canaan who reigned in Hazor. You might be wondering, why isn't Jabin, why isn't he the villain here? Why Sisera, who's just the commander in his army, right? Well, if you dig into the history here, you'll find out that Jabin actually died decades before this story is written. And Hazor is a city that's already been destroyed to ruins. Joshua defeated Jabin, and Joshua defeated the city of Hazor. What they're really talking about here is, is Sisera, now decades later, from the same clan and probably from the same tribe, is now trying to reestablish the kingdom of Jabin that was centered in Hazor. He's trying to reclaim all those lands that once belonged to Jabin, but God, through Joshua, gave to the people of Israel. So Sisera is your villain, trying to restore that kingdom in the line of Jabin. And so far, he's been pretty successful. Right? We read that for 20 years. Think about that, 20 years, that's a long time. For 20 years, he has been cruelly oppressing the people of Israel. And there was no end in sight for his oppression. Right? We're told here that he had 900 chariots, which means he had 1,800 horses, because each chariot in those days was pulled by two horses. He had 900 iron chariots. The people reading this, the people of that time, would have seen that as Power beyond belief. Okay, 900 iron chariots doesn't mean much to us. It means a ton to them. Because back in this day, iron, the use of iron was just beginning. It was just being developed. In fact, Israel won't use iron chariots until the time of Solomon. So, so Sisera is way ahead of the time here. And 900 iron chariots pulled by 1,800 horses. Each of these chariots would, would be plated with iron on the side. They'd have two people in it. One person would be driving the chariot, and the other person would be an archer ready to do battle. And these tools of war were mobile, they were fast, 
and they were feared. So reading these verses tells us that this enemy is real. Okay, the people of Israel have the right to be afraid. This enemy standing before them is terrifying. For them to go to battle against Sisera would be like in modern day if we sent foot soldiers in against a column of tanks. Right? That, that's slaughter. They didn't stand a chance. So for 20 years, Sisera's cruelty has, has been stealing the life and the hope from the people of Israel. And 20 years was long enough for the people of Israel to remember God. And true to their cycle, they cry out to God for relief. And that's where we meet the next character in our story. On to the scene steps Deborah, the, the judge and leader of Israel, which is really a surprise in itself. In this, in this patriarchal society that God would choose a woman to lead his people, to lead his nation, is... is is fascinating. And, and she didn't just fill in because there wasn't a man. She is greatly honored. We're going to read in a moment that she held the title both as judge and prophetess. There's only one other person in the history of Scripture who held both the title of prophet and judge, and that was Samuel, a pretty influential guy. So she's in, she's in great company here. I want you to hear what, what God says to Deborah. Read verses 4 through 7. Deborah, a prophetess, the wife of Lepidoth, was leading Israel at the time. She held court under the palm of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel in the hill country of Ephraim. And the Israelites came to her to have their disputes decided. She sent for Barak, son of Abinoab, from Kadesh in Naphtali, and said to him, The Lord, the God of Israel, commands you, Go, take with you 10,000 men of Naphtali and Zebulun and lead the way to Mount Tabor. I will lure Sisera, the commander of Jabin's army, with his chariots and his troops to the Kishon River, and I will give him into your hands. Okay, stop there for just a moment. De Deborah speaks Bold words, confident words. She gives us a picture of God's purposes clearly laid out before his people, right? God has a plan. He's heard his people's cry. He has a plan in place to set them free. And God doesn't keep his plan hidden. He doesn't keep it mysterious. He makes his plan, he makes his commands very, very clear and specific, right? He says to Deborah, and he says to Barak, go. I'll tell you where to go to. I need you to go to the Valley of Jezreel. Barak, I'll tell you who you need to take. You need to take 10,000 men with you, and you need to go to Mount Tabor. And I'm going to bring Sisera to you, and I will empower you to defeat him. You will have victory. Victory will belong to Israel. Pretty clear. Pretty specific. God's going to set his people free. And Deborah, the prophetess, the judge, is the voice of God making these purposes crystal clear. It's through Barak that God desires to work out his plan. And yet, like so often happens, God's plan is ultimately worked out not because of Barak so much, but in spite of him. 
Right? We're, we're familiar with the pattern ourselves, right? Aren't we? God makes it clear what he wants to do through us. He makes it clear his plan for us. And, and instead of boldly saying, awesome, let's go, how often don't I, don't you say, uh, how often don't we doubt? How often don't we hesitate? How often do we not believe that God will actually follow through on what he's asked us to do? Well, that's Barak's first response. Barak is Israel's top military leader, and he receives this direct message from God. God says, go, and I'll give you victory. God tells him his purpose. He reveals his plan. He gives him the details. He gives him his assurance and his promise, and, and Barak is filled with doubt. He's filled with fear. Listen to his response in verse 8. Right? He hears these bold words from Deborah, and he says, says Barak said to her, if you go with me, I'll go, but if you don't go with me, I won't go. In other words, Deborah, please hold my hand. Hold my hand because I'm scared. He doesn't trust God's command. He doesn't trust that God's going to actually do what he promised to do. And listen to God's response, verses 9 and 10. Very well, Deborah said. I will go with you, but because of the way you're going about this, the honor will not be yours. For the Lord will hand Sisera over to a woman. So Deborah went with Barak to Kadesh, where he summoned Zebulun and Naphtali. 10,000 men followed him, and Deborah also went with him. Now notice, just pause there for a moment. Notice Barak's hesitation doesn't stop God's purpose, does it? It doesn't stop God's plan. God chose to use Barak. He had that plan in place, and he's going to do it. Even if Barak doesn't go willingly and eagerly, he's still going to use him. He's still going to bring victory. God will work out his plan in spite of him, in spite of his doubts, in spite of his fears. God is still going to win. God's purposes will still be worked out. He's just going to give the glory to somebody else. That's exactly what we see as this battle plays out. Listen to the rest of the story. We're going to start at verse 11, read through the end of the chapter. Now, Heber the Kenite had left the other Kenites, the descendants of Hobab, Moses' brother-in-law, and pitched his tent by the great tree in Zenaniam near Kadesh. Now, just let me tell you there who Heber is, because we're being introduced to somebody who's going to play a part in the, in the story here. Heber, we're being told here, this Kenite, the Kenites have always been allies of the people of Israel, right? The heritage from Moses' brother-in-law. They've always been partners and allies. And here we, we're told that Heber leaves the people of Israel, and he moves away, and he sides with Sisera. He buddies up to the enemy. So you have a traitor family here in Heber's family, okay? Read on. When they told, which is Heber and his family, they're the ones who told Sisera that Barak, Barak, son of Abinoam, had gone up to Mount Tabor, Sisera gathered together his 900 iron chariots and all the men with him from Herosheth Higium to the Kishon River. Then Deborah said to Barak, Go, this is the day that the Lord has given Sisera into your hands. Has not the Lord gone ahead of you? So Barak went down Mount Tabor, followed by 10,000 men. 
At Barak's advance, the Lord routed Sisera and all his chariots and army by the sword. And Sisera abandoned his chariot, fled on foot. But Barak pursued the chariots and his army as far as Harishoth Hegium. All the troops of Sisera fell by the sword. Not a man was left. Sisera, however, fled on foot to the tent of Jael, the wife of Heber the Kenite, because there were friendly relations between Jabin, king of Hazer, and the clan of Heber the Kenite. Jael went out to meet Sisera and said to him, Come, my lord, come right in, don't be afraid. So he entered her tent and she put a covering over him. I'm thirsty, he said. Please give me some water. She opened a skin of milk, gave him a drink, and covered him up. Stand in the doorway of the tent, he told her. If someone comes by and asks you, is anyone here, say no. But Jael, Heber's wife, picked up a tent peg and a hammer and went quietly to him while he lay fast asleep, exhausted. She drove the peg through his temple into the ground and he died. Barak came by in pursuit of Sisera, and Jael went out to meet him. Come, she said. I will show you the man you're looking for. So he went in with her, and there lay Sisera with the tent peg through his temple, dead. On that day, God subdued Jabin, the Canaanite king, before the Israelites, and the and the hand of the Israelites grew stronger and stronger against Jabin, the Canaanite king, until they destroyed him. What a story. God, God works out his power on behalf of his people just like he promised. In fact, historical records give us more detail. Historical records tell us how God brought about this great victory. Right? They're all gathered in the valley of Jezreel, which is in the north of, of Israel there. And, and Sisera would have loved that location. Right, an open valley, an open plain where his chariots could roam free. He readily went there to fight battle in that area. And so here's, here's Barak with his 10,000 men on the mountainside. And here's the, the valley filled with chariots of Sisera. And historical records tell us what God did as he brought a massive storm to that area. And that storm dumped water into the river Kishon, which we say there that the 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 chariots are parked right next to, and the waters overflow, and the valley floods, and these chariots are stuck in the mud, useless. They can't even move. And Barak runs down the mountain, there's 10,000 men, and God routs Sisera's army. God brings them victory. And, and for the first time in two decades, they're free from Sisera. And God's hero in this story, God's hero in this battle, is not anyone you'd expect. You'd expect the hero to be Barak, right? This, this, this leader of the army, the one who gets this great victory, he's not the hero. You'd expect the hero to be Deborah, the judge and prophetess who goes with him, who holds his hand into battle, right? Well, you don't hear her name mentioned at all come battle time. God's hero is an unknown woman named Jael. Completely unexpected hero. You know, as a kid reading these Bible stories, it's one of the favorites, isn't it? 
tent pegged through the forehead? What teenage boy isn't going to love this story, right? This is like one of the, the highlight stories in the Old Testament, right? But Jael deserves, deserves God's hero status for better reasons than just putting a tent peg through a forehead. And Jael gives us a picture here of how God's honor is given out. God doesn't give honor the honor of being used in his kingdom and for his kingdom purposes. He doesn't give that honor just to those who are strong and mighty like Barak. He doesn't give that honor just to those who are in positions of leadership and power like Deborah. God gives the honor of being used in his kingdom, of being used for kingdom purposes, of bringing huge kingdom victories to anyone who's obedient to his call, to anyone who's obedient to the plan and the purpose that God sets before them, to anyone who takes the opportunities that he gives. Right Here's Jael, a completely unexpected hero. She's the wife of a traitor. And yet she stays loyal in her heart to Israel. She stays loyal to her God. And when God lays this opportunity before her, when God makes this plan clear to her, she obeys. She brings Sisera into her tent, the perfect hiding place for someone on the run, because in that culture, no man would ever enter another woman's tent. Only your husband could go into that tent. So he's found the perfect hiding place. And with this opportunity from God clearly laid before her, Jael doesn't doubt. She doesn't hesitate. In courage, she lays everything on the line. She's laying her marriage on the line. She's laying her family on the line. She's laying her own life on the line here. And she takes an everyday domestic tool that she would have been familiar with since tent pitching was, was women's work back then. Kind of wish I would have known that during my camping years with with my wife, okay, but she, this is a tool she used all the time. She knew tent pegs. She knew hammers, and with that tent peg and that hammer, she takes down the commander of the army that had, that had oppressed him for 20 years, that had, had Barrett shaking in his boots, and she takes him down, and God gives the glory of victory to a housewife using a common household tool, the equivalent of a kitchen utensil. And I love at the end of the story how God brings Barak by, right? Just to kind of maybe show him what he missed out on. And he gets to see his enemy defeated at the hands of this unknown woman named Jael, the unexpected hero. You know, each one of these faces in this story teaches us how we can and must still be heroes today, right? This is an ancient story with a very modern message for you and for me. And we need to listen to it. We need to listen and learn because the truth is, as you see Sisera's face here in this story, the truth is the enemy of God still stands face to face and toe to toe with you and with me. Okay, he most often doesn't take the form of armies and iron-plaid chariots anymore. But this enemy of God, the power of evil, the power of Satan, still has the power to destroy in our lives and in our culture. 
Right? We talked two weeks ago about, about the reality of the spiritual battle that's going on all around us and that's going on within us all the time. Satan stands in opposition to God. Satan stands in opposition to God's people. He stands in opposition to God's church. He still rides in on chariots. It's just that sometimes now he rides into our lives in this chariot of doubt, right? It's an intellectual battle and he causes us to question the truth and to question God. Sometimes he rides into our lives on his chariot of fear. It's an emotional battle where we doubt God's goodness or maybe we doubt God's power in the face of death or disease or some other huge disappointment of life. Sometimes he, he rides in on this chariot of success, right? That's the arrow he shoots at us from, from his chariot. He gives us great success, and in our success, in our ease of life, we begin to doubt that we really need God. We can do this on our own. That's the arrow that was so effective against the people of Israel in the time of the judges. Sometimes he rides in on the chariot of selfishness or laziness or anger or abuse or timidity, Anything, he'll use anything that will hold you, that will hold me back from living out God's purposes and God's plans that he's laid out before us. So the first thing you and I need to do is we need to identify, we need to put a name and a face on the power of evil that is standing toe-to-toe with us. Right? It's easy in this story, his name is Sisera. There's a human face behind it. Maybe it's a little more thought-provoking for you. What is the enemy that's holding you back? What is the opposition's name in your life? What's the enemy that keeps you from faithful living? Do you dare to name it? Do you dare to identify it? Because that's the first step towards becoming a hero for God. And this story goes on to make it clear that once you identify the enemy, once you realize that who you're in battle against, this story makes it clear how to become a hero, the steps that a hero takes. Right? Like Deborah, the hero, first of all, begins by listening for God's voice, making his purpose and his plan very, very clear. Just like he did for Deborah. God doesn't keep his purpose for your life. He doesn't keep his purpose for us as church Hidden. He doesn't keep it a mystery. Right? Read this book. Read this book and you'll hear God's voice pretty clearly. You'll hear his plan for you when he says, you know, I want you to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And then go out and love your neighbor as yourself. Especially love those who are poor. Especially love those who are suffering. Especially love those who are needy. Right? You'll hear his plan for your life saying, calling you to serve him and to serve others. You'll hear his plan for you to be generous, to be compassionate, to be bold, to be faithful, to be forgiving. Right When you honestly identify the name of that spiritual enemy standing against you, then God, through his word, through the people around you, through prayer, will reveal to you his plan for how you are to stand against that enemy for his kingdom purposes, for his kingdom plan. And honestly, let's be truthful here, like Barak, we may not always like God's plan when we hear it. 
In fact, you probably won't like it. It will frighten us because it will probably include effort. It will probably include risk. It will probably include a certain amount of sacrifice on our own part. It will probably include courage and take discipline and some hard spiritual work. It will take great trust in God. See, when heroes listen for God's direction, they then trust God enough to move forward, even when they can't see the end, even when they can't prove that victory will be theirs. They trust God enough to move forward step by step in faith and to turn his plan into real action. They obey. Right? Like jail. They use whatever it is that God has given them, whatever opportunity, whatever tool he puts in their hands for his purposes. They don't put conditions on their obedience like Barak did. They simply obey. And sometimes that obedience leads to big, risky steps of faith. Most often that obedience leads to daily, practical, tangible steps of faith that can be just as difficult as those big ones. That's the path to being a hero for God. Because God is in the business of raising up heroes to stand against the villains. And the ultimate power is his, right? We need to realize that. The power for victory is his, but he chooses to give that honor and that glory to us, his people. And even the weak ones we see. Even the small ones can be heroes in God's kingdom. You and I, every single one of us here can be a hero because somebody needs you to be a hero for God, for them. Somebody is counting on you to stand toe-to-toe with the enemy and be a hero. Identify that enemy. Listen for God's plan. His plan to prosper you and not to harm you. His plan to give you a hope and a future. And once you hear that plan, you'll need to decide, do you trust God enough? Do you truly trust God enough? Do you truly believe that God is God? Do you truly believe that he will do what he promises? Do you truly believe that his growing kingdom is worth whatever he's asked you to do? And those answers won't come From your mouth, those answers will come from your life. They'll be answered in whether you obey or not. Jail obeyed. God turned her into a hero. 20 years of opposition, 900 iron chariots, and a mighty warrior fall at the hands of an unlikely woman holding a tent peg and a hammer. And if God can make a hero out of her, he can make a hero out of you. He can make a hero out of me if we will courageously stand for him, if we will listen, trust, and obey. Would you pray with me? God, sitting here this morning, it's easy for some of us to say, yes, God, make me a hero. I want to be a hero in your kingdom. I want to be used powerfully by you. And yet, my guess is 
that when it comes to living out what it means to be a hero, when we hear your plan for us, when we clearly hear your call for us to go, we're going to be filled with fear and doubt. And Satan's going to send his chariots in to keep us from saying yes, to keep us from trusting you, to keep us from being obedient to your call. Father, give us the courage to take every opportunity you give us, to take every calling you lay before us, and to say, I trust you, God. I trust that you're going to do what you say.